0: I was in a feisty mood, a combative mood. The scotch and wine I had in my hand at midnight probably didn't help with matters, but uh, I was with some pastor friends and I was itching for a theological throwdown. Uh, we get together often and a lot of times uh, we sort of share challenges and joys about pastoral ministry, but at other times it's like we just can't help ourselves sort of functions, this group, as a theological royal rumble. Throw out some ideas and then tackle them, wrestle them out, duke them out. And on this evening, I was itching to get in the ring because I had a bee in my bonnet. Uh, The week prior, a person who used to attend Nexus had posted on social media, and ooh, this stings for a pastor like me, said this, I can't believe I used to believe in a God who ordered Abraham to kill his own son. I'm embarrassed to think I used to see this story as an example of outstanding faith rather than evidence of a cruel and bloodthirsty God, which I no longer believe in. Funny isn't how preachers always avoid this story. I suppose if they didn't avoid it, they might come to the same conclusion I did. This imaginary bloodthirsty God isn't worth believing in. That annoyed me. There was a double sting there. Most vexing is, I have preached on this before. But second, this person isn't entirely wrong. Pastors and preachers do avoid this story. And if we didn't, maybe we would come to the same conclusion as the person. A story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his own son in cold blood is a very disturbing story, and this brings us again into the tensions we experience with God. Leon Kass writes this about the Abraham-Isaac story. No story in Genesis is as terrible, as powerful, as mysterious, as elusive as this one. It defies easy and confident interpretations and continues to baffle me. Baffle indeed. There's one way of dealing with a story like this is to spiritualize it and say, are you willing to give up even the most important thing to you for God, which seems really cheap to me, This Abraham story, it doesn't bend so easily. It's not the same as Jesus asking the rich young ruler to give up his wealth. This is categorically different. And I'm inclined to think the reality is that if any of us heard a voice asking us to kill a child, I think we would question that voice and maybe check ourselves into a mental health institution So we might applaud someone for giving up things like wealth for God, but there's no way we would applaud a person who would say, I am willing to kill my child for God. Even still, whatever Abraham does in this story, this isn't a question primarily about human action. It's about divine action. Regardless of what Abraham does in the story here, the harder question is wrestling with whether God would actually order someone to kill a child. Is something's amiss here, and so that evening with my pastor friends, I threw it out. Defend yourselves, pastors, I said. Give me your best interpretation. Someone would ask you, how do you believe in a God who would do this? What would you say? And we threw out answers, debate, bedlam ensued. Most of us not content with our answers by the end of the evening. So what do we do with this story Are we left trying to ignore it, trying to defend it? What do we do? Well, I've become convinced that there's something very amiss in this story. And to figure it out, we're gonna need our best Sherlock Holmes eyes to figure it out. Now, I've been doing a lot of reading on this story and I came to Kristen late this summer with what I thought was a genius idea. I said, honey, I've got this amazing idea. On one Sunday, I'm going to hand out cards to Nexus saying they've been summoned for jury duty in the trial of God, Isaac versus Yahweh. And then my idea was this. Do any of you remember Columbo, Detective Columbo? I'm dating myself a little with that one. That's, uh... But I was going to show up. I said, Kristen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show up in a trench coat with a cigar, a unruly suit and put on my best thick New York accent, and I will do the sermon in character as Columbo trying to defend this story. And Kristen said, that is a horrible idea. She said, nobody will take you seriously. That's going to be ridiculous. I still think it was a good idea, but she made me self-conscious. So, I'm going to spare you the dramatic flair of pretending to be Columbo but I do want to ask us to play the jury. Um, the story of Abraham and Isaac is a difficult one, and, and Dave flagged this for me. Uh, last week, we talked about the story of Job uh, as parabolic. This story is no parable. Genesis 1 to 11 is a, essentially a, a, a sort of mythical anthropological look at the world, the state of the human condition. But the moment we get into Genesis 12 and Abraham's story, we move into redemptive history. And so this is not a parable, something we can just write off. So let's dive in. I'm going to read the story. That's all that the prosecution needs is for me to just read the story. Um, I'm going to read the story minus the costume and the accent. And you get to play prosecution and jury. Is there a way to satisfactorily figure this out? This is Genesis 22, the story as it goes. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. "'Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, "'Father,' yes, my son, the fire and wood are here,' Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering?' And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar, arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed there. Disturbing. Bizarre. And yet I echoed the sentiments of Richard Middleton, I simply do not believe the God I have come to know would ever want me to sacrifice the life of another as proof of faithfulness, nor do I believe that this God values blind, unquestioning compliance. Now, to start with a quote like that uh, sort of assumes I've already reached a verdict in need of evidence, but let's be honest, what's the alternative starting point? And I think that there's some weight here And that's one of the things that even as we sort of investigate the story, we've got to be careful to keep the emotional weight of the story firmly in view. This is picked up in the story. There's this one line in there. It doesn't read in English sort of the emotional intensity, but there's a little stumble in the story because Isaac is walking with his father Abraham and he notices something missing. And Middleton notes that Isaac's tentativeness is lost to us in English. In Hebrew, the text reads Isaac said to his father, and he said, It's as if he goes to speak and stumbles Hey, dad, uh, dad, something's missing. The sacrifice. And Abraham's words are actually a lot more ambiguous than we might seem. In the English, it says, God will see to the sheep for a burnt offering, my son. But it's not clear what Abraham's doing here. In fact, there's a really… I love this comic strip about this. If you want to put the… Here's the wood for the sacrifice, dad. Groovy, here's the dagger for the sacrifice, dad. Keen, where's the sacrifice? God will provide Isaac. Wait, did you say God will provide, comma, Isaac or God will provide Isaac. Come here, son. I ain't budging until you put in a comma. I left. That's great. Oh. Yeah. Something strange going on in this story, and you can tell Isaac's a little, oh, what's about to happen here, Dad? And so I think it's incumbent on us that even as we look at the story to remember the emotional weight. What's happening here? Uh, Richard Middleton um, says the appropriate response is to come to the text with what he calls reading with wonder. He says, reading with wonder is a way of abiding in the text while also bumping around within it, feeling the text's jagged contours, peering into its dark crevices, looking for anomalies and subtleties that raise eyebrows as well as, on occasion, the hair on the back of the neck. So, Let me dive in as defense lawyer for this story. I want to prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt that this story is not gory, and actually is good news. Tough order. We'll see. The evidence to me points to four things that I want to share with you, and I'm excited about this. I kind of geek out about this kind of stuff. Hopefully, you do too. But let's start with the weakest evidence. Number one, Abraham employs a lot of peculiar behaviors in the story, is the narrator of the story, alerting us, the audience, that something is amiss here. There's a lot of little, hmm, what's going on? Why does Abraham rise early in the morning, the day after he hears this voice from God? Is he trying to hide from Sarah? Where is Sarah, Abraham's wife? She's conspicuously absent. Why does Abraham saddle his donkey Abraham is this big patriarch, he's got servants to do that stuff, seems strange as he's trying to hide his wrong intentions, chops his own wood, that seems a little strange, and wouldn't it make sense to chop the wood and then saddle the donkey? And then when he's on his way, he says, servants, stay over here, Isaac and I are about to go over there and do the sacrifice. Oh, Abraham, do you know you're about to do something wrong and are trying to hide it? There's some oddities in the story, some circumstantial stuff. Where you're like, hmm, something's out of place. But the next three to me are what makes me think something very different is going on. Second is this. Abraham is no stranger to complaining to God. So why is Abraham silent here? I think Abraham's silence in the face of God's request, that's what bothers me most And part of the reason that I walked us through the book of Job last week was to highlight an important point. When it comes to suffering and injustices, the psalmists aren't silent. Job isn't silent. So why is Abraham? That Abraham is silent in the face of God's request to sacrifice Isaac is entirely puzzling, particularly because Abraham does challenge God very boldly just four chapters earlier. Um. In Genesis 18, there's a story. A great cry has gone up to God about injustices in Sodom and Gomorrah. And this great cry of injustice that God hears leads God to go and investigate. What's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay, it's a complete gong show there. Everything's bad. And so God threatens to destroy the cities. And Abraham shows up and says this to God. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it for you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Ooh. That's not just complaining. That's a full-on challenge to God's character and morality. Abraham's all in God's face like, really? You? Righteous God? You're going to do something wicked? I mean, this is precisely the kind of boldness we see in the Psalms and in Job. Abraham steps into the ring with God and lands some pretty good punches here. And over the next half chapter, Abraham asks if God will save the city if merely 50 righteous people can be found. And God says, okay. And Abraham's going, oh, that's kind of surprising. Let me see if I can nudge a little more out of this God. I love this. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? Oh, this is genius because he doesn't even say 45, just trying to play on God. Would you be so petty as to do that for lack of five people, God? And God says, okay. So Abraham goes, well, what about 40? Okay. What about 30? Okay. What about 20? God says, okay. 10? God says, okay. Now Abraham stops at this point, but it isn't clear to me or the average reader that Abraham couldn't have kept going. Abraham could have kept going. To this point, God had shown no sign of resistance to Abraham's request. In fact, in this story, God comes across as a complete shove-over when it comes to negotiating. God never hesitates once to show mercy in the story. Okay, okay. It would seem that God knows this about Abraham. He will protest injustice. But when it comes to his own child... Abraham silent? Makes no sense. And this event is not some distant memory. This is four chapters earlier that Abraham will intercede for strangers in a city he isn't a part of but won't even intervene for his own son? Hmm. Something is amiss here. Terence Freedom writes, the narrator may intend that the reader... Having learned from Abraham in chapter 18 how to question God, is the one to ask questions here. I think scripture is so clever that the story was never meant to be read as it comes to us on the page, but rather the story comes to us, the reader, to create tension. Whew, what would I do? How would I respond? This doesn't seem right. Something weird's going on here. Three, is this actually the God of Israel, Yahweh, speaking here in this story? Next major clue comes to us in recognizing uh, who is making this request of Abraham. And This story was written in Hebrew, of course, to a Hebrew audience, and so they get it in their original language, and there's some things there that they would pick up on that don't come to us in English. And this is the interesting thing. I think it's something like 18 times God speaks to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And the narrator consistently uses the name Yahweh. Are these all on one screen? Let's go to the next slide. There we go. In 12.1, Yahweh said to Abraham, Yahweh appeared to Abraham, Yahweh said to Abraham, the word of Yahweh came to Abraham, then the word of Yahweh came to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur. Yahweh appeared to him and said, then Yahweh said to Abraham, then Yahweh said, then Yahweh said, Yahweh said, when Yahweh had finished speaking, it's Yahweh who's talking to Abraham. But when we get to Genesis 22, it isn't Yahweh. It isn't Yahweh who asks Abraham to sacrifice his son; rather, it's Ha Elohim. Genesis 22 actually reads this way: Then Ha Elohim said, "Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you." Whoa. Now, in the Old Testament, Elohim is often used as a name for God, but ha Elohim is very unique. Middleton writes this, while we don't know for certain what the purpose of this deviation is, the effect is striking and I might add ominous. Thomas Romer suggests ha Elohim was a term used to denote a God that dwells far away from humans and appears to be incomprehensible. Well, this is suspicious. Is this even Yahweh talking to Abraham? Is Abraham having trouble discerning the voice of God? Is Abraham confusing the voices of the ancient Near Eastern gods who did require child sacrifice for the authentic voice of God? And is the point perhaps for the reader that just because you hear a voice doesn't mean it is God? It needs to be discerned and dissected. In my estimation, this is best done in the context of community. but Without knowing the Hebrew, it's like, whoa, 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 we've missed this entire switch happening in the text that really pours on a whole lot of weight. I'm not convinced that's even Yahweh talking to Abraham. Fourth piece of evidence, why is Abraham's family missing after this story? For Middleton and his writing about this story, this is actually for him the most critical piece of evidence. Uh, In verse 19, it says, Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. Mineralton writes this about that. Isaac is conspicuously absent. This is a very well-crafted narrative in which every detail matters. After noting that Abraham returned to his servants, Abraham travels with others, but no longer with his family, no longer with his son, Abraham's life is marked by a series of separations. The Aquedad narrative concludes with a simple, even tragic comment that Abraham lived at Beersheba, no mention of Isaac or Sarah. The loss of Abraham's son by the end of the narrative raises the questions of the significance of this datum. There's no evidence that Abraham and Isaac ever see or speak to each other again after Genesis 22, because what son would go home with the father who tried to sacrifice him to his God? It looks like the text is intentionally making the point that Isaac did not return with his father. And what about Sarah? She's missing at the start of Genesis 22, also missing from Abraham's life for the rest of the Genesis account. The next time Sarah is mentioned, we are told of her death. Did Abraham's attempt to sacrifice Isaac also result in her alienation, or were they separated even prior to chapter 22? We don't have clear answers, but what we clearly have is a broken family. And so often, this story is used as some bizarre heroic tale of faith, but it's not that. He doesn't arrive home after this test by God cheered on by his family. Instead, we get the portrait of a man who failed so drastically in trying to understand God that he lost his family in the process. And what's God's response to all of this? To start, it's noteworthy that... uh, the rescuing voice for Isaac is an angel, not God Himself. That's of interest. But what we do hear from God can be mistaken as praise, but I don't think it is praise at all. What we're told in the story is that God will keep His covenant with Abraham. That isn't new, though. We already knew that. We're also told that God now knows that Abraham fears Him. Clearly. But that isn't praise. That's a statement of the obvious. If you're willing to do that, clearly you fear me. But there's no resounding, well done, good and faithful servant. There's no, wow, I delight in you, Abraham, after this test. All of that is absent. And if, and that's a major if, but if God was the one who did author this test, then I would contend that blind obedience wasn't what God wanted. In fact, blind obedience was Abraham failing the test. And it's interesting when you think about the legacy of Abraham, the larger narrative. Uh, post this story, Abraham, in the Genesis plot line, he comes into the spotlight, and then there's Jacob and there's Joseph. but Isaac is relegated to kind of this minor role. And it's easy to miss this, but later on in the story, Jacob, the one who wrestles with God, he's about to make an oath, and he talks about his father and grandfather, and this is what he says of them. He's about to make an oath, and he says, the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. The fear of Isaac. That is what Abraham passed down to his son, fear. By intent or otherwise, what Isaac learned from Abraham is God is fear. This God is to be feared. That is Abraham's legacy to Isaac. I don't know about you, but that was kind of my legacy in church. Growing up, fear God. Hell, brimfire. That was kind of my legacy too. I don't know if I'm the only one here, but growing up in church, that was, that was the legacy of faith I inherited. God is to be feared. But the narrative doesn't stop there. And that's the beauty of the unfolding nature of Scripture. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the middle or the end of wisdom, the beginning. Abraham and Isaac passed down to Jacob the fear of the Lord. But Jacob has the audacity to say, yeah, but I'm going to get in the ring and wrestle with him anyway. Abraham feared God. That was clear, but that was a failure of the test. Isaac feared God and disappears into the narrative. But Jacob says, "Mm, there's something more to this God than fear. Middleton writes, Abraham shows that he fears God, but in passing that test, he failed another one. We can say that Abraham genuinely, in the end, tried to obey the God he understood, inadequate as that understanding might have been. But in refusing to intercede and protest on behalf of his son, as he had previously done before, Abraham failed the test. Abraham was being tested not for his unquestioning obedience, but rather for his discernment of God's character. He was being tested for his trust in God, to be sure. But genuine trust is not equivalent to blind faith, to do anything a voice from heaven tells you. And this is why Abraham's silence is so tragic. Daquida testifies to the patriarch's missed opportunity for lament, but I continue to wonder, suppose Abraham had not been silent. Suppose he had been so sure of the mercy of God that he could wrestle with God, arguing back, challenging God, interceding for his son. He might have come to know the compassion of this God who hosted and affirmed Job's complaint, which brought Job comfort in the end. What do we to make of this story? I am not at all convinced that this is Yahweh in the story. That ha-elohim thing just rocks me. I'm convinced this is the narrator, narrator cleverly trying to say, Ooh, look it, sometimes we can think we hear from God and it's not God. Perhaps that's the lesson of the story. How do you discern the voice of God? But even if this was a genuine test from God, I'm now convinced we've taken the wrong moral of the story. The moral isn't that we should follow God blindly and in silence. The moral is, it is our duty as people of faith to talk back to God. It isn't to obey God at all costs and live in fear. The text is too provocative for that. The moral is, in fact, to the contrary. It's an invitation to know a God of compassion, mercy, kindness. It's an invitation for us in prayer to speak our minds, our truths, our complaints, and protest to God. It's an invitation to know, as Abraham's grandson Jacob knew, that God is fond of wrestling. We should never be scared to get into the ring.